to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where we read interesting science writing and then talk about the ideas behind it. I am science editor Blythe Terrell, and today we're going to be talking about the ideas related to risk and the book The Art of Risk by Kate Sugal. With me is our awesome 538 science team here in the building. We have senior science writer Maggie Kurth-Baker. Hi, Maggie. Hi there. And we have public health, food, and culture writer Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Hey, Anna. Hello, ladies. And then we have lead science writer Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Christy. Hi. All right. So this is really exciting. We're all in the same place. Often we are not. We don't know if you all can hear that on the radio, but um, thrilled to have everybody in one room talking about risk and the art of risk. So Maggie, tell us a little bit about The Art of Risk. So The Art of Risk is this book that Kate Zuckel wrote after she went through what she sort of described as a reverse midlife crisis, where all of a sudden she stopped making as risky of choices as she had as a younger person and found herself kind of drifting into a life that she was worried was going to turn out to be boring. And so she started asking questions about how we make choices about risk and why some people make more risky choices than others, and what kinds of factors go into our decision-making about risk. Yeah, okay. So she looked at um, a lot of different things like within the brain and how different parts of our brain are involved and all these other things. And um, one of the things that that got us thinking about is what risk is. So as a starting point, you know, how do you even define risk? Well, that was actually kind of one of the interesting things is that like she talks a lot about how there are all these different definitions of risk and all of these different researchers who are approaching this from this di- these different ways all kind of have different ways about of thinking about it. So like, for instance, one researcher that she talked to described risk as the appraised likelihood of a negative outcome for behavior. And others describe risk as behavior that carries potential for harm. Right. Others, so the harm part's interesting. The yeah, harm yeah. part is interesting. And then others were saying what we're talking about when we talk about risk are decisions where the outcome is probabilistic and those probabilities are known. Oh, that's definitely my mine. <laughs> yeah, but that's so interesting in itself, like the, like whether or not the negativity is is a component of it. It's that like was one really thing I wondered about, yeah. about when you're thinking about risk. Like in choices yeah, you does make. there have to be something bad? Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like you don't hear people talking about, yeah, I'm buying a lottery ticket. It's really risky, right? It's almost like in reverse. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm at risk of losing $5. <laughs> right, right. But it's, I mean, it's, it's really the same concept. But I yeah. think that that example really shows that we think of risk much differently when it's a positive outcome versus a negative one. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's actually some pretty good research on this looking at, you know, people are very, they tend to be more risk averse. So in other words, they will sort of, they w- they're less willing to accept risk when the, the risk is an outcome that's bad. So they're very worried about mm-hmm. bad things, mm-hmm. whereas something that's a good thing, they're, they're willing to be sort of, quote, more risky. So you're more likely to maybe buy that lottery ticket when your quote unquote risk of winning is very low. But if that were reversed and that was the risk of developing a terrible disease or dying or something like that, you may like the odds would have to be greater before you. You would think about it very differently. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Right. And that's really interesting, Christy, because the thing that's kind of funny to me is that like a lot of this assumes that there's a right and a wrong outcome. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. and that is so interesting because that's so that's not how most decisions in life are. I think it's really important here to acknowledge that risk really has sort of value judgments baked in. Mm-hmm. So we can use probabilities to assign um, numbers to these things, but that can't tell you like what's an acceptable risk. I mean, that that is really a value judgment. And it can't like right. where do you draw the line between dangerous and risky? 
that's really something that human value. I mean, it depends on, on what your values are. Well, yeah, like there's there's one uh, source that she's talking to in this book. It was like a woman who's trying to evaluate whether she should take this new job opportunity that pays more, but is at a startup as opposed to keeping a, you know, stable job that she's not as excited about. And that was one of those interesting things that stood out to me when we're talking about optimization. Well, like, there's not a right answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also, know? like, right, and both of the outcomes are neither of the, neither of the outcomes is bad. Right. Neither well, of the outcomes is bad. So, like, it's... There's you're, risks. You're also yeah. taking a risk whether you take the job or don't take the job. Right. 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 And so th- that's the other thing is that... Like, not acting is also is a risk. also... Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting it's because... It's an action. Oh, right? or an mm-hmm. action. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's right. And I think it's important to point out here, too, that... That not acting, so we sort of tend to, like the human mind sort of looks at that decision, the decision not to act has certain risks, but we tend to not think of them the same way as acting. And Mm -hmm. so there are these interesting dynamics, um, sort of in the same way that a risk that you feel in control of, whether you are or not, but if it's something that you're doing or you're sort of taking on yourself, for instance, like um, doing a dangerous climb in the mountains or skydiving or something like that, that may feel much different than something like, you know, choosing to fly where someone else is piloting the plane or or a risk that is imposed on you. Um, You know, in public health sorts of things, people tend to be much less willing to take on risks if they feel like it's being imposed on them from outside versus something where it's a personal decision, a risk factor, like their choice to smoke or not to smoke or to exercise. Or like the risks, like, so when you think about debates over the Second Amendment, and you're talking about like the risks associated with not having a gun in the house versus the risks associated with having a gun in the house, and how you feel about those risks is really subjective, right? Based yeah. on and based a lot on how what you feel you have control over, right? That, exactly, Maggie. And I so I was in the Florida Keys recently doing a story about this potentially using this new technology with these genetically modified mosquitoes. And it was really interesting because people are really divided on what are the important risks and how, like how to assign those probabilities essentially. Right. And so there's this unknown technology. We don't really know what's going to happen when you release genetically modified mosquitoes into the environment, though there's been some research and we're starting to understand it. I think most scientists feel like the technology is relatively safe, but clearly as a society, we have a lot of questions about genetic modification that are not answered yet. And so a lot of people feel like that is the important risk, that we don't know what to do about this technology. Whereas other people are like, but we have these diseases that these mosquitoes are carrying. Right. We know this exists. Yes. And they're in Miami. And so that is a more important risk to them. And, you know, how, who gets to decide? Because, so it's That's not just so an hard. individual. Like, yeah. this isn't a decision right. that's going to affect me. This is the whole community. And then ultimately is a technology that could be deployed, you know, much further. That's an important point, Anna. And I think it's also important to note that when there's uncertainty, and there's certainly uncertainty here with the GMO mosquitoes, um, people's level of comfort really varies by their values again, too, right? If they feel like it's something that, you know, some other entity is imposing this uncertainty on me, that feels a lot scarier to a lot of people than I'm choosing this thing. And I'm sort of like, I know that it's uncertain, but I'm kind of hedging my bet or whatever. Like so, I've thought through everything and it's everything's in my hands. And yeah, and this researcher, um, Michael Cobb from North Carolina State University, he did a survey and he found that people who uh, were more concerned about the threat of human disease were more likely to be in favor of the technology, which makes sense, right? But, mm-hmm. like, you have to perceive the disease as a threat but to understand sort of what the importance of the technology could be. And then vice versa, other people are like, but we don't have these, you know, we don't have a lot of this disease here, and so why are we taking this chance with a new technology? This So this is something interesting where I, I kind of noticed this conflict throughout the book where you have 
the scientists talking about risk as something where the probabilities are known. But then you have Sukal kind of pushing back on that. We're like, you know, actually, we don't always know the probabilities or the probabilities mm -hmm. are interacting in really confusing ways that are actually not that easy to quantify. And it kind of struck me that like, there's that control issue almost going on in the science of risk itself, that like some of these scientists sort of want to be in control of risk as a thing in a way that we maybe aren't. So like, does, does risk in the lab translate into risk in the real world yeah or like that it, question yeah i think it's i think it's that question but it's also kind of like, like the interaction is so the complicated and they're simplifying is so, it too yeah much. yeah okay. and like you're simplifying it too much that you're getting you're getting answers and the answers maybe make you feel a little bit better about the risk but the answers may not actually correlate to what real world decisions are actually like yeah maggie as i was reading this book i there are a lot of instances, a lot of studies that she discusses that I felt sort of skeptical of. And there are a lot of sort of lab lab experiments with college students <laughs> looking at risk, you know, playing games. Yeah. And, you know, they, they give them money and things to try and have incentives. But I was really wondering, like, how well does this translate to the real world? And a lot of times these studies were pretty small. And so you sort of wonder, I mean, she even mentions this in the book, the idea that there are probably some false positives here and that this is a problem. And so I was a little bit wary of putting too much faith in some of the science, um, because a lot of it, a lot of the explanations just felt like just so stories to me. Well, so the, <laughs> yeah. talk about some of the, the, so the studies that were done are often with, they're with money, they're with games, they're gambling. Um, and then like, a, or one of the things that I think came up too is, you know, like what's a risk to you, Christy, or to you, Maggie, or to you, Anna, maybe is not a risk to me. And that's because I'm coming from a different place too. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it is hard because it's hard to capture all of the things that go into a personal, a personal decision about risk and a personal interpretation about risk. And I think that's what those studies, I think, have a really hard time doing, which is, it seems like what you're saying a little bit, Christy. Yeah, and I think there's another issue that, that Sukal does discuss in the book, which is that um, sort of levels of competency and sort of, I guess what, it really, what I'm really trying to get at is perceptions of risk can vary based on your individual circumstances. So, um, you know, I live in Colorado. I'm pretty adjusted to the altitude, you know, climbing a tall peak, you know, it feels like something I could do. It doesn't feel pretty risky to me. But, you know, maybe someone who lives in New York who never goes hiking, hasn't hasn't gone hiking in a long time. Unfamiliar you, with the territory. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that might feel a lot more risky to that person. And so and it might actually, in fact, be more risky. And so mm -hmm. some of this, you know, it doesn't just translate. Like some of it is really people assessing to them what, what, what would it feel like and what would, based on your competency, how risky would that be? Yeah, Christy, and that, I mean, it, it, to me, it's like such a difficult thing to research for that reason. Because yeah. and, and, you know, there's all these um, examples of rock climbing in the book. And I <laughs> rock climb like three or four times a week, but I'm afraid of heights. And so every single day, <laughs> that's hilarious. every I'm single day, like the first half hour is about me dealing with that feeling of oh, risk that I know huh. um, is not... Uh, is it's not exactly like it's a it's a made up risk or whatever you know so it's so it's really interesting because but then like yeah there are things you know I'll travel anywhere and eat any food and that does not even come to me you. as a risk yeah. whereas I know that that's something that would be a risk to me concerning for yeah. a lot of people when they travel it makes mm -hmm. a lot of people afraid of traveling well and I, also there's there's this whole idea of what is in sort of your social network or what is acceptable so like Anna you have a lot of friends that travel you've done a lot of travel you've lived. Um, internationally. And so there are certain things that just maybe feel normal to you that someone that's outside of their experience 
may feel more risky to you. And this is something that Sukal discusses in the book, right? That that if you are among, I mean, I think she uses the base jumpers as an example, right? You know, rock climbing, um, when it's done, you know, properly with ropes and things can be very safe. But to someone who has never rock climbed and doesn't know anything about it, it may seem very risky. So a lot of it is is perceptions, but also sort of like norms within your in-group. That's funny, Chris. Yeah. So are extreme sports not extreme to the people who are right. <laughs> athletes yeah. inside yeah. of them? Yeah. Sorry, Maggie. I, so I was thinking about how interesting it was, like when you're talking about the uh, not trusting the studies, there's a part where she's talking about gender in the book and risk that really, I thought, illustrated this really well, because she first kind of sets up like all of these studies that have shown that like, oh, testosterone totally increases your risk taking and like your you know, your tendency to be comfortable with risk. And then kind of comes back around to these other studies that, well, okay, but actually, like, once you account for societal variables, and once you start looking at other kinds of risk besides just money and base jumping, like, (laughs) women's risk taking and men's risk taking actually isn't all that wide of a variation. Yeah, she, I mean, Maggie, she almost, she kind of makes the, the case that really what's falling out of the research here is that men and women are confident in different realms or have different competencies, feel like they have different competencies. So women, you know, things that a man might feel like is risky or, or dangerous, a uh, woman, you know, women tend to feel more comfortable right. with. And so it doesn't feel, it, this goes back to the idea that like it's perceived risk, right? Right. Which may not be, may or may not be Is accurate. all risk just imaginary? Yeah. Right. Well, but like, I like, I wondered what that meant about the testosterone studies, like that if men and women actually don't take risks at that very different of a rate, why are all these testosterone studies showing you that like testosterone makes you more risk taking? And I, I'm so curious and I really I'm going to ask her about this when we talk yeah. uh, tomorrow. But like, I really want to see what would happen if somebody went back and did those studies in a way that wasn't necessarily thinking of testosterone is dudes, estrogen is women. Like if you kind of got out of that binary, what would those studies be showing you instead? Or is it, Maggie, is it a fallacy of like the kinds of studies we do to measure risk, which are just tend to be these very finite things. So one is like, you have the small amount of money, are you willing to take a risk to double it or whatever? Or, you know, like video game like things where you're... We asked 12 frat boys. Yeah, Yeah, that's another, I mean, that's a whole nother arena where, you know, college students as the only... Yeah, research subjects. Research subjects. Yeah. We have 12 cats, 12 frat boys, what they think about yeah. poker. <laughs> but I do think that this raises a really important question, and that is, um, you know, how you design the studies can mm-hmm. can really sort of rig the kinds of results that you're getting. And the way that you're asking the question will sort of, I mean, it, it almost presupposes, I mean, by, by doing a study looking at testosterone and risk-taking, you're kind of presupposing that it has something to do with it, right. which it may or may not. Yeah. You know, another thing I wondered about is that um, – so it, it, she talks a little bit in the book about how some people think of risk taking as a positive attribute and other people mm-hmm. think of it as negative, right? So you're mm-hmm. and and so if you're doing one of those studies, does it matter if you're coming at the idea of risk with one of those because you know people like to give the answers they think the researchers are looking oh, for. Yeah, that's a great and point. I know that they don't yeah. know what they're being asked about. You know, so that I mean that's obviously the setup is they usually don't know what the right desired the outcome is yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But I yeah, I really I really wonder how that affects how people do on these tests, especially given that they are sort of limited kinds of risk that they're trying to measure. Well, I think about like the ev- like the, the gender thing also made me sort of think about like the everyday risk of birth. and like the way that we think of that 
as like the, the, the way that that gets framed is simultaneously super risky or not risky at all, or, you know, just even thought, not even thought of as a risk in any way, depending on who you're talking to and what their agenda is and what they happen to think about this situation. And, like that, that's, I, I think, a really good example of how your perception of the risk shapes what you think the risk actually is, if you think your risk exists. Absolutely, Maggie. And I've written a lot about cancer screening. I've written at least three stories for 538 about this topic. And one thing that I've learned is that people um, are very fear-driven about about screening. And some of this is because of messaging and, and awareness campaigns and whatnot. Um, but, you know, you ask women what they're afraid of, and they're afraid of breast cancer, even though heart disease is a much bigger killer. Um, but there's also this phenomenon where, you know, we know now that screening can cause harm. Um, you know, it ends up overdiagnosing. Um, it finds cancers that don't need to be found. So we're turning a lot of healthy people into cancer patients. And this is true of, of several different types of cancer screening. Um, but people, when they're looking at the risks, they tend to sort of downplay and dismiss those because the, the sort of driving risk here is the risk of, you know, people think, oh, if I get cancer, I'm going to die. I don't want to die. And so that that risk is sort of looming larger, even though there's a much greater risk of this other harm, which is that you're, you're being turned from healthy into sick. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, really interesting. But I think, and I think that's, um, again, goes back to the interplay that we've been talking about this whole time. Like, how do you measure one risk against the other? How do you measure, I mean, people feel like they have this perceived risk with inaction, as in not getting that screening. That's right. And that's the bigger risk. And there's this fear of regret, too. I've interviewed mm. some women who say, you know, I know that I may be diagnosed and treated for cancer that wasn't going to hurt me, but I just, I want to know that I did everything I could. And I don't think that you can put a number on this. You know, I think it really is a value judgment of like deciding. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that you can absolutely say that both of those things are harms, but it may be true that some people are willing to accept that risk and take on, you know, the unnecessary treatment if it means that they are, um, you know, reducing their risk of dying of cancer. Well, I think that speaks a little bit to a, another big question that we've talked a little bit about is this idea of rational decision making and how that came to be the optimal way to approach one's life in the West. Yeah, like that. So that was a question that jumped out to me as I was reading this because a few years ago at the, the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, I saw this lecture by a um, science historian named Jed Bookwald who was talking about how uh, like the development of science as a practice and how like in the 17th century, you would have these scientists who sort of thought of themselves as craftsmen. And so they would do like seven experiments, you know, the same experiment seven times instead of averaging out the answers they would kind of look at it and be like, well, I can tell that one is the correct answer. That's the good answer. That's the good answer. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, like the same way that I could pick, like if I was a carpenter, I could pick the best table. Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. that was super mind-blowing to me at the time because I'm so used to thinking of – Scientific method. Scientific it works this method way. and rationality, like rationality being a virtue and scientific method being this thing that, you know, we all know how it works. And – you forget sometimes that those things had to be invented. Right. That's totally true. Yeah. And um, I was, that's kind of led me to sort of ask um, Sophia Ruth, who's a historian of science at Harvard about like when we came up with this idea that like rationality was the virtue and like that 
we should be making rational decisions rather and like it was a failure not to make your decisions rationally, which I think is something that sort of comes up in this book as like a, a undercurrent that like, why don't humans make decisions rationally? Isn't it bad that humans don't make decisions rationally? And then, <laughs> like, rather than being like, well, humans, we just were natural. This is how we make decisions. This is how we make decisions. Right. And that's like, right. um, that's, and she that's kind okay. of, she really felt like it was tied to uh, like Cold War era economics and decision making about like nuclear war. Well, one question I have about that, though, is yeah. like, is our understanding of rational changed? Because there are obviously people who were bringing yeah. science into philosophy a lot right. sooner than that yes. and talking about rational thinking, you know, many hundreds of years ago. Um, I, I mean, I hear kind of what you're saying is that there's been this shift where rational and economics have actually become really intertwined. Right. And the way that we do research, you see in a lot of these studies, is has to do with economics, which is kind of interesting that that would be the way we think about the money and finance would be the way that we think about risk taking is very strange to me. Yeah, Yeah, I think this goes back to the whole issue of what is risk too. And I think in this book, it's framed in a very particular way that maybe doesn't um, always capture every aspect of it. Yeah, she pointed me to a book called How Reason Almost Lost Its Mind, um, (laughs) which is about uh, kind of about rational choice theory and the... um, uh, kind of how economists started thinking about questions like nuclear war in the early 60s. And one of the points, I've just started reading this book, so I don't have a whole lot to say on it yet. But like one of the points that this book starts making is that over time, like rationality and reason used to be different things. And we've kind of merged them into one thing. And as part of that have lost a version of rationality that involves more subjectivity into it and in favor of something that's much more quantified rather than qualitative. Okay, let's continue the conversation in a minute. But first, here is Jody Avergan with a word from this week's sponsor. Thank you, Blythe. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best ingredients from their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious, easy, home-cooked meals. And you can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options to fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get the deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com point. That's three free meals at blueapron.com point. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, back to this week's episode. Okay, and we're back talking about risk and the art of risk by author Kate Sukal. So one question I had for everybody is, did the book change your behavior or approach to risk at all? Like, did you find yourself thinking about it in a different way as you were reading? So I I found myself feeling like I don't, I don't want or need to know how the brain is working 
when I'm making decisions. So you were just not, not interested is, in the in the. It's the, really weird. I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. I'm not to do a podcast in the world. Shame, I, mean, I love shame. science. I love biology. I really like knowing how the human body works. And to me, that uh, what's happening with dopamine in my brain is not something that I care about when I'm making a decision. Okay, which is really so interesting. Yeah, well, that's some, sometimes those things are important to find out. You're like, this is actually eh, maybe not that interesting to me. Um, what about, because actually I did find myself a little bit, um, thinking about some of these things while I was making decisions, because there are things she talks about, you know, in terms of when you're feeling stressed, how does that affect your decision-making? And actually sometimes it's not, it it can be good, uh, and can like cause you to think, you know, think more carefully about a decision. So there were times when I incorporated like a couple of things from here and actually found it to be useful. So, um, anyway, I happened to be making some important decisions during the time, during the course of reading this book. So maybe that's oh, why. Oh, do you tell? Care to elaborate? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> no, um, but anyway, yeah, so I did. Like it made me think a lot as a writer about how we deal with branches of science where there are a lot of studies being done, but those studies are flawed in important ways. So like how you talk about something like, oh, there are all of these genes that are maybe being assigned to risk taking and like risk decisions, while also like trying to make it clear that please do not think of this gene as the risk gene. Right. And and this book made it very clear to me that that's hard to do. Okay, so you think maybe there were some challenges in there in terms of fully explaining yeah. the science in a way that seemed like... right because it kind of it kind of felt sometimes like we were saying like the science explains this oh but the science doesn't explain this right and it's hard to I think explain to a layperson like which group of scientists the ones that say that you can't just look at genes and the ones that say you can look at genes, how you get the nuance, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like the nuance is really complicated. Yeah. And I think when it came to the genetics, I think that Sukal did did I mean it was sort of presented in like oh here's an explanation oh but but also it probably doesn't right, doesn't yeah. work but I think that you know one Read of the to issue, the end folks right yeah. right one of, one of the issues though is like we all want like the simple answer right and you you yeah. want the sort of Malcolm Gladwell here's the secret formula mm-hmm. and you know I don't think that that this book provides that and that's to its credit for, right, right exactly <laughs> yeah like for good reason yeah. but like the book makes it really clear why those like simple formulas yeah. are not useful. I guess I would have liked a little bit more of a unifying theme, though. Yes. And Mm -hmm. sort of, it it felt like I sort of wanted to know sort of more about what should I take away from this? Um, You know, for me, really, what I took away from it was just how important values are in in Mm. assessing risk. And that a lot of these things, I mean, really, you could probably take this book and take out all the um, mentions of risk and change it to decision making. I mean, it's really about making decisions, right? And how do we make those? And so risk is a part of that, but there are a lot of things that can underlie that. So there may be cases. So in the example that she uses of her friend who's been offered a new job and the decision whether to take it or not, there are a lot of different values that go into that and you can assign them risks, but some of them are, are just like, that may not be an appropriate or the best way to actually look at it. Right. Like, do right. you want to live in Austin and do you want to live, or do you want to live in California? It's yeah, hard like, to put that on a risk spectrum. Exactly. I mean, except, you know, so the, it is really interesting that the examples I think were a little bit tricky in some cases. Earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't have those in Texas all that often. Um, yeah. No, I think that I, I agree. I thought that that was, was pretty interesting. Um, and I mean, there was definitely for me some interesting stuff in the middle too, like about how our brain develops over time and how teenagers 
you know, ad experience risk. And um, I thought some of that was interesting. But yeah, I, I didn't get a whole, I didn't get a very strong unifying theme either. Okay, so I think, um, I think we're ready to wrap it up. I'd like to know if you all would recommend the book to others. Anna? Maybe. Maybe. Would it depend on the person? Yes, exactly. Right. How, their approach to how they think about risk. Maggie, what about you? Would you recommend the book? Um, I would recommend the book in terms of like some of the content. It wasn't the best read for me. Mm -hmm. um, and that made it hard to follow some of the content. But um, I, I think that some of the content was really interesting and thought provoking, if not necessarily about like how I make decisions, but about like how science is done. Okay. And Christy, what about you? Yeah, um, this is kind of hard for me. I'm a fan of Sukal's magazine writing, and she's a very good writer. I was sort of frustrated with this book um, for the reasons we've already sort of discussed. So I think I'd have a hard time recommending it, but I wouldn't tell someone not to read it either. Um, you know, I think if you're really interested in risk, it has a lot of good information, but it was just, it was kind of an unsatisfying read. And, you know, a lot of that is not her fault. It's the, the subject matter, too. Right. It's how do you talk about the, yeah. engaging the science about some on of the, the subject stuff. matter? Right. Which yeah. Is yeah. Right. Satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, sometimes we have that, too. Like at, at 538, we'll be like, oh, we should write about this. And then we'll be like, oh, the science is very inconclusive. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know, yeah. like there's another we just story. don't know. Yeah. Another story of, well, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not exactly. sure. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would recommend it either. I liked some things, but I think overall, um, yeah, I, I think it was, you know, if it, maybe if there's like a follow-up where some of the, you know, we have some more information on some of these or there's better, uh, some better research that's been done, maybe I would read that. Um, I also thought it was interesting that she called it the art of risk because I really felt like it was, it was less about that. To me, it was very much, you know, it was very much like, here's what the science says, which is what I wanted it to be about, but... I thought that was fascinating. I'd be interested to hear Maggie if she has thoughts on I will ask the title. Yeah, would love to hear. <laughs> All right. That does it for us today here at Sparks. Thanks, Christy Ashwanden. Nice to be here in New York. Thanks, Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Thanks, Blay. Thanks, Maggie Kurth-Baker. Thank you. All right. So today we talked about the big ideas from The Art of Risk by Kate Sukol. In the next episode, Maggie will be interviewing her. So you'll hear directly from Sukal about the book itself. And we're looking forward to that. That'll come out, I believe, next week. So keep an eye on your What's the Point feed. And we'd love to give you a heads up that next month in, in November, in honor of Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about The Food Lab, a giant science cookbook by J. Kenzie Lopez-Alt. So you might want to get your hands on that. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada, and Andrew Wagner in the control room. Thanks to Mark Bramhill for help with this episode. As you know, we'll be doing this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed, so subscribe now and don't miss an episode, and please help spread the word. Also, let us know what you think. You can email podcast at 538.com with any comments or suggestions for Sparks. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks again for listening.